Hello, welcome to the Tech for Good podcast. We are very passionate about two things, technology and our world. In each pod, we will be interviewing some fascinating people, business leaders, but those with a special interest in solving the biggest issues facing humanity today. Think the environment, think healthcare provision during a pandemic, think global social injustice. If you want to know more about technology's immense potential to fix and transform, then you're in the right place. In this episode, we speak to Nick Kelly. As CEO of Axella, Nick has helped to drive innovation in the healthcare arena with his company's tech and data-centered approach to care services. His story is unique. In the interview, we cover how Nick was once headhunted by Apple, why he was destined to work in the care sector, and why he believes data is the future of healthcare, especially in a post-pandemic world. But first, you won't want to miss this extraordinary story of his early career. Okay, Nick, thanks for joining us here on the on the Tech for Good podcast obviously I've, I've done my research I've looked into into your career and I've been told a lot about you but I always like to hear first of all um, about somebody's career in their own words so do you want to start by giving me a, a sort of potted history of your your story my thanks very much for inviting me on um, Ben my you mean my eclectic history um, it I think my yes yeah, so my history is, is quite strange so I kind of I've always wanted to be from, I don't know, age of five and a massive cliche, and it's not after watching Top Gun, but I always, always wanted to be a pilot. It was the only, I think the only job that in my mind I always saw when growing up and friends were like, oh, I want to be a footballer, I want to be a fireman, I want to do this. I was like, yeah, I want to be a pilot. I want to fly planes. And, and also, I don't want to be just a commercial pilot. I want to fly planes where, like, fast. I want to see and push as much as I can. And I, and I kind of did everything I could and spearhead everything to get to that point. But along the way, I decided that my natural entrepreneurial skill had to come out somewhere or other. Um, so I think I said, so I think I set my first company, I think I was about 17 or 18 years old. Um, I think my first actual um, business loan was from my mother, my mother. So she loaned me, I think it was like 50 pounds, which was, I mean, which is the nineties, which would have been a fair amount for us. But she loaned me 90 pounds and what we did was we pulled together a cookbook um and i love you know i, I i'm from the caribbean so I'm, I'm all about home cooking and i still advocate that some of the best meals i've ever had is when someone puts time and energy into them and they're cooked at home so that that meal you get from your grandmother that meal you get from your mom it, it just it invokes memories it invokes that that feel so i kind of when i was in sixth form i kind of was like great i've got a great idea so i emailed so at this point, I spoke to everybody. I spoke to all the teachers and said, can you all give me one recipe from your family that you'd be happy to put together and show and show to other people? So, I mean, we had recipes from Malaysia. We had recipes from India, from, I mean, from the Middle East, from the Caribbean, from Africa. I took it all together and went, great. So I typed it up, cooked a couple of them and took pictures. And I was like, right, I've got a cookbook. So got it bound. Um, and then got it published and selling it and actually um, sold it and used the the proceeds to pay for university. So it did it did pretty well. Um, but it was it was kind of what what that made me realize at that time. It, you don't have to come up with. I mean, 
Facebook wasn't around, but you don't have to come up with the next Facebook. You have to take what you have and what you can do well and just put it together. It doesn't have to be big, big tech. It can be quite small, low rent um, products. And I'm not saying a cookbook is low rent, but I was taking what other people loved and putting it into one space and then using it. And everyone also then felt like they'd been involved. So everyone was then advocating it. So they were telling their family, oh, look, we've got this and it's met it's Master Days and look at this. And, and and it was the first time I kind of, I think it was when I, now I look back at it, that's kind of how influencers work. But you I mean, back in the nineties, influencers wasn't a thing, wasn't even a job or thing you put on your whatever Instagram or social media profile. Um, and I, and that for me was always a way of kind of getting where we wanted to get to. So we did that. And then we then start, we made recycled products out of, um, so we use like MDF and recycled materials to make um, small home for home furniture. So we were making like tables, CD racks, just picture frames, just anything we could that we could, we could easily knock up, could create in volume, but didn't really need a huge amount of skill. And so we did that. And then, so then after that, I went to, I went to uni, um, joined the Air Force, got the job that I wanted. And it was amazing for the time it was. It was it was amazing. Like, I, I don't think, I think the first day when I was walking towards an aircraft and I was like, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly this. They're going to let me fly this. Is, is no one going to stop me? And, and, and it, it felt like I'm walking with a helmet in my hand. I've got my flying gear on. I'm just like, someone has to stop. At some point, I'm going to be told that this is a dream. And I just walked and it just, it's one of those moments where you can, you can live a dream and get to a point and go, right, this is great. But it's kind of, it's an unattainable dream that I was living. And every moment I had to pinch myself and realize that I was privileged enough to be where I was because after doing a seven or eight hour aptitude test and doing a whole day's medical and half a day's worth of hearing and eye tests, it was. You were stripped down. I mean, it was, yeah, you literally were stripped down to your boxer shorts when you did the medical. But it was just, it was so, you, you had to get to that point. Um, and it was something I, I just felt so proud of. So, like, it changed my outlook on a lot of things. Um, and, it, and it really helped me to to work out how to be stronger um, and better. And then, so yeah, and then I was on, I was, I was stupidly one night, I think, I, I think I'd come back home for one for a weekend and I was on a on a high after some stuff had happened and it was I was in a really good place and a friend of mine had just got a new bike he was like oh do you want to go for a ride and I said yeah fine so I decided to jump on the back of his bike um and after about 10 minutes we crashed at 80 miles an hour hitting a lamppost I tore all the ligaments in the left hand side of my leg um shattered my kneecap and broke my leg um and have wasn't able to fly again so after sort of four years of doing that it was what am i going to do now what what do i do and it and i kind of had to go how 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 difficult was that because you you said earlier you know this is the dream you'd had since you were a a tiny boy you and you know the the obvious kind of narrative here is that you've built up and you've achieved your dream and then it's taken away from you so quickly but you also said you're an you've kind of got an entrepreneurial spirit and entrepreneurs always tend to look at the the kind of positives out of things i I wondered what what your approach was in that in that moment i think i i I wouldn't say i was at the top 
I wasn't, I hadn't completely achieved my dream. I think my dream was snatched away from me at a very early stage because I was still, I mean, quite relatively young in my career. Um, but I think what I realized was at that point was things are so fickle and anything can be snatched away from you. So I had to work a little bit harder, but also appreciate what I had. Um, and then I, I kind of then sat back and I was like, okay, so what can I do? Like, realistically, what can I really do? And I, I've always loved, um, I've always loved design. I've always loved technology. I've always loved, I've always been that person that likes to take things apart and work out how, how they work. And I remember having a, even a computer when I was like 13 or something like that. Um, so I said, all right, I'm going to go and go into advertising. So I went, I went and worked for um, a company called AKQA and I was working there and I left and went, did a few others. And through that journey, what I realized was I don't like working for other people. I, <laughs> I, 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 what I realized was my, in my mind, what you can do is, is this big, but in other people's mind is it's this big. And actually it's all, all about, well, how much money can we make from this one thing? Let's not spend the energy to do this big thing if we can't do it. So I wanted to do my own thing. So I set up my own um, friend of mine, we set up our own media agency and actually we were running for three years, four years. Um, he just got married and I was actually doing his speech at his wedding. I was having to look. We ran for like three, four years um, doing our own product. And then, you know, and then that was that was really, really good. But I needed to learn. I'm I'm constantly I constantly like to learn things. So so one of my old clients when I was working in media um offered me a role um at, comp at Unilever. Um and that was that was amazing because that really helped me to kind of learn technology so we were building it's 100 and something country websites doing like a whole lot of really big scopes and specs but it was it was such an open job spec that I was having to think of so many different things and because I was doing the technology side I was having to be at the forefront so we were I mean we were the first ones to release an investor relations app in the app store and actually the app was aimed at I think something like 13 people or whatever it was downloaded 3,000 times it was like the number one app in three three different stores but having to create a scope for something that no one had ever had. And it was nice because I, I was like, I was having to build the whole spec from, from scratch myself to give to, to the agency so they could, they could build it. And then, you know, give to, to, to my boss to, to sign off on. And we took that and I, I left there. And then I got a really strange, weird headhunted for a role that I, and I kind of said it, but it's like, it took me, it took three interviews before I actually got told who, who, to come, who it was for. So the headhunter wouldn't tell me who it was for. Um, the first interview was done in a cafe. The second was done offsite. And then I think it was like the third interview I went to. And I was even still, I, I, at this point, I still hadn't really known who I was going for the job for. I was just knowing that I had to basically, it was someone important enough that they wouldn't tell me who they were. And I had to be on my best behavior. So I had to kind of bring my A game. And I walked out the lift and I saw a very familiar um, fruit-based logo behind, behind, the, um, behind the counter. And I was like, ah, this all makes sense now. Hello, I'm Daniel Brigham, editor of the Tech for Good magazine. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. And if you want more, why not head over to techforgood.digitalbulletin.com for some amazing thought-provoking stories. How about AI's role in fighting the Californian wildfires? Or maybe one startup's mission to end illegal fisheries using satellites and machine learning? Read and subscribe at techforgood.digitalbulletin.com.
So after his time at Apple, Nick worked for LinkedIn and also co-founded a care agency in London with his mother. As he chewed over the possibility of a new role at LinkedIn, Nick decided to take a risk and instead jump in full-time at the care agency. That is what became Accela Group, and here he talks about the early days of making data and technology a priority. So we, I, I came back into the business, we, I mean, we cleaned all the processes, we moved the office, and then what we realised, one of the things I realised was, I mean, 10 plus years of looking after people in their home, looking after people in hospitals, looking after people in, in care homes, we weren't holding the data in a usable format. And that's not to say, we look, before anyone jumps and goes, oh, what's your data policy? No, we were taking care notes and we were, we were basically putting them in a filing cabinet or we were taking information and putting them in a computer. That's all we were doing. We were taking, we were, move, we were moving paper from, from here and putting it over here. That's all we were doing. Yeah. Why, weren't we, why aren't we using that data? And actually, the, in, in, in most cases, the data in the community is valuable, it's huge. I mean, you might see your doctor for an hour a year, if that. But the same individual might see their care worker for 60, 70, 80 hours a week. So why is the data from that person not being used? Why is the data from that person not as valuable as anywhere else inside the, the, the value chain? So we, we kind of set out, um, Martin and I, I mean, my, my ex-business partner, when we first set up um, Excel Innovations, what we wanted to do was, was create a product that could hold the data, but allow the data to be inter interrogated um, but the data be put in a quantifiable and qualitative way, so it could be. So we built um, our first system, and then we reiterated it, which turned into Care ID. So Care ID is, is, allows us to hold all health and social care information on one, on a person. We then are able to analyze that data and turn on and off as and when we want to. But it allows you to work out what's going on at any one time. That for me, when we first tried to set out to build that, that was like. Huh? How uh, how are we going to do this then? And I think we had it was it was here. We basically just took a whole wall and just wrote everything down and just worked out how we thought it could work. We tried to map it. It was just I think at one point we were doing a mostly because it, it was quite topical, but we were doing like a Tony Hart style where you look at it, it was just individual little bits, and you stood back and went, "Oh wow, we have <laughs> we we have something here." And it, and it we and then we kind of reached and again kind of what we would, we've always done is we've never had big budgets so we were bootstrapping this whole thing ourselves but what we were able to do was tap into a huge wide network of friends and family that had a skill set so we I mean I reached out to some friends and said look does anyone know anyone that knows how to do AI or or neural engine or even just any like data manipulation um, and we we were put in touch with one person and he then said look. This guy that I, work, I, I studied with at, um, at Edinburgh, he might be able to help you. Um, why don't you reach out to him? So we reached out to him and told him what we're doing. Turns out he's the head of neuroscience and artificial intelligence at Edinburgh University. And he was like, love the idea. I mean, my daughter's just been um, sick and she, was, she went into hospital. So anything I can do to help, I will. I mean, I think this guy is like 5,000 pounds a day consultancy fees to, you know, to Google. We were getting him at like the price of a packet of crisps and a pint at best. <laughs> but it wasn't because it wasn't because that's that's what we thought he was worth, but it was because of what he had. But it was just we were passionate about the idea and we were trying to do do something different. Um and it, and, and in that kind of in that same guise, I was like, well actually, 
look, I, I'm always, I've always been, I think, can show it for my first thing, but I've always been business minded. I need to start creating some structure. So I create, we create Excel, um, and then everything then starts splitting out into it. So you've got a care agency, two care agencies, you've got assisted living, you've got um, training and consultancy, you've got technology. That all sits underneath the group structure. Um, and that allows us to really simplify what we're doing. So we're building technology, we're testing technology, and we're probably one of the only ones I think can do this, where we're building technology over here, and then we're testing it with, you mean, a thousand people that we're looking after over here and going, well, this doesn't work, so let's, let's change it. And then it's, it's not that kind of, oh, test, test, break, and see. No, I'm putting it in, I've got, you mean, care workers walking in and going, can I, can you play with this? And they go, oh, that button's too big. And I go, great, I thought so. And I'm, and I'm not having to wait weeks and weeks and weeks. I'm not having to roll out a big build. I'm not having to, I'm, I'm having to test it. And I think coming from an environment where, you mean, where people talk around about agile, agile um, methodologies and agile building, being able to literally walk up to an end user and go, does this work for you? No, it doesn't. Okay, what would, what would work? How do you, how would you want this to work? And I think that's quite, quite unique about the way that the group has been structured is everything we're doing, there is another entity inside of it that would either benefit from it or can, can support it to work. That's great, Nick. I don't, really don't have to ask, ask any questions here. This is fantastic. <laughs> um, I want to take you back to that, that kind of decision you made. And obviously it's turned into a huge decision in your life when you then decided to kind of go away and do your own thing. You said you had the motivation to work for yourself, and I completely understand that. Obviously, going into a, a business like care, it, I don't know, it feels to me like you have to be a certain kind of person to do that, a certain kind of, um, have a certain level of empathy in, you know, with people. Do you feel like that was a motivation for you as well? Do you, is it fair to say maybe like you were always going to kind of go down a route like that, or is it is it a completely different story? I think naturally, naturally as a person, I want to help other people. I think naturally as a person... Look, everyone says they want world peace, but it's it's something that I grew up as a as a Catholic and and I always wanted to help other people. And I, I mean I was very when I was younger, very tuned into the church somewhat. I say that with a smile on my face, but I was. But it was it was I mean, you're drummed into about making helping other people and doing things to to help other people, and that's what your reward in the long term is. And I've always wanted and because of that, I've always wanted to help. So inevitably, I mean one of our, our I think our, our our second core value is 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 making the world better for other people, and that's something that and that's something that's been instilled in me from going to church, but also from my parents, that you have to help other people because you don't you generally don't know what other people are going through at any time in their life, and I think that again that kind of mentality stemmed into some of the things we do in the office. So I mean, back end of last year, I think it was December every member of staff did mental health first aid. So everyone is a qualified mental health first aider. And it wasn't because I wanted to tick a box, but it was because, I mean, my, and, and I know he's gonna listen to this, so I'm, please forgive me, but my best friend tried to commit suicide. And I think the signs were there. I just didn't know how to inter interpret them enough. And I've had, and I've, and then actually there's a lot of people in my life that are are struggling. But again, I wasn't sure how to help and support them, so it would it was it was nice to kind of do that. And then when I realized I I benefit from that, I realized that everyone should be, and that's kind of yeah, and that's kind of what we do. So naturally, being where I am, I think is is where I was always going to end up, and yeah. 
helping people is something I, I want to do. For me, the long-term goal is to help people, is to make healthcare accessible um, to everybody. And that kind of feeds heavily into why we started building tech out is, from my perspective, the only way you can help and support somebody and the only way you can actually do anything is by using the data. And we take data from every other source to drive technology, but why are we not taking the data from the source in healthcare? I mean, and, and I, I think I explained it to somebody, you know more about your health and what's going on in your body than anyone else in the world. Your doctor might be able to tell you what's, why it's happening, but they don't know what's happening. And someone said, oh no, my doctor knows, I mean, I'm not medical trained, my doctor knows more. I said, okay, great. Go to your doctor and sit down for 15 minutes, say nothing to your doctor, then get up and go, so what pill should I take? What's wrong with me? He's going to go, well, you haven't given me any information. So why are we not, do you know what I mean? Why are we not, that's what it is. He's using the data to inform his decisions. So why are we not using the data in the community to inform the, the to, to inform proactive care, to inform the decision-making? Everyone kind of forgets that part of it, that they don't just get to this information by looking at you and going, oh, yes, you might look at someone and go, nope, that's a cut on your head. Yeah, that's... I don't need you to give me any data, that is a cut. But in most cases, you do need some form of some form of context to work out what's going on with somebody. So when and look, clearly your your some natural empathy shines through. Um, but yeah, bring I was I was gonna bring it around to the, the technology point. When when you're mapping out your sort of technology programs as you have you have done at Acceler and you know, we're talking here about sort of big projects at the center of your motivation. Is it that desire to, to help people ultimately? It's not about, you know, making your business more efficient or saving money. Obviously those things are important, but is it, is the primary motivation one of, you know, we, we can deliver better care if we do this. Yeah. I, at some point I'm going to be a user of, of my own product, I assume. Yeah. So the best thing I can do is build the best product now that I can be proud of. There are, I think there are only a couple of inevitables in this world. We all know birth and death, less so birth, but definitely death. Death is the only inevitable. Old age is also an inevitable. So how do I, how do I create something that will support me when I get to that point? How do I create something that will support other people when they get to that point? So when we're building, I mean, we, we went a whole year bootstrapping a product, tried to get investment, but we went a whole year bootstrapping a product because we believed so much in it and we, we were working so hard to create what we thought was the best. And I think, I remember we went for, I think it was Innovate UK, we went for Innovate UK funding and someone said, well, what you're trying to do is too ambitious. What you should do is strip it back and just do one element of it. And I said, well, if I try to do just one element of it, that's not me feeling proud of myself. That's not me, that's not me, me living my truth or trying to be what I want to be. I have to build what I think is the best. If I'm not moving the envelope that much further forward, then why? And I'm not saying our product is the best. I'm not even going to say our product might be around in 10 years' time. But someone has to put a stake in the ground and say, right, this is the line you all need to get to. Now it's your turn to get better. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that that's what we've done, but what I'm saying is we stuck at, stuck our, drew our line in the sand and we know that there are a lot of others that have, tried and haven't even got close to where we have um and i still want to push so you know, one of the things we we kind of started building is the consumer side of the product is holding your health records it's holding your your travel like if you ever go out and get i don't know if you've ever been 
if you've ever been anywhere basically south of the equator, you need to get a bunch of like yellow fever, ma uh, malaria. You got all these, you get all these injections. You might forget when you had those injections. You also have to have that. I think yellow fever is the only one you actually have to have a passport for. You might forget that you where that where that is. Okay, well, why can't you have that in a in a unified place? Why can't you then? Why can't you track that? So when you do have your malaria tablets, your doctor knows you've been you took malaria two years ago, and actually you're taking this other medication or you're taking something else. Why can't I, if I go abroad, why can't I take my medical records with me when I go abroad? Because I might, I mean, I might need a doctor to to input into that information. Why can't I? Because also, what we call one bit of medication is completely something different in another country. How do I know what I'm looking for when I run out? You mean, or, or how do I know that that medication can even be taken into that country? And and it's not it, these aren't big things. I'm not saying let's create something. I'm not trying to create a spaceship here. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is let's take what we have, put it in put it in in a, in a usable format. So we so we're. I'm a part of my own journey. I'm, I'm a part of my own information. And then let's start bringing everything else into, into the one place. Everyone, everyone right now, not everyone, <clears throat> that's a lie. A lot of people are thinking I mean, the future of health is robots. I don't, I still, I think the future of, of health is data. We still don't use, utilize people's data. So there's no point going into a hospital and having a robot that can, you know, analyze stuff and having this cool hologram. I don't care about that. What I'd love is, if I'm sick at home, I would like that information to be triaged to the hospital. And what I don't, what I really want to do is when I go to my doctor, my own GP or hospital, I don't want to have to tell them about every last operation I've had and every last visit I've had to a doctor. I just want that they can pull it all up and they can give me the time of day. It's not, it's not, you know what I mean? It, it feels like a pipe dream. Do you want to keep up to date with the latest in enterprise, technology and digital transformation? Visit digitalbulletin.com for news, long reads, thought leadership, and so much more. That's digitalbulletin.com. Why have healthcare and technology so often not been happy bedfellows? Why do you think healthcare is, is behind? And let's be frank, I don't I don't know specifically about the care industry. You might you might tell me different, but we we've been we've spoken to many people who who have, have said you know the problems run deep when it comes to technology and healthcare not just on the innovation side but also on the IT side and the the and and the data area as well i mean it's it's across the board why what why is it so bad i don't know um and that's not uh, that's probably the wrong answer <laughs> <laughs> i know uh, even better <laughs> i know i know <laughs> um my thought like realistically my thoughts on that is is who's deciding on on this? And healthcare, like I think a lot of other sectors, just aren't seen as sexy enough, right? When you talk about, you mean the big, the big companies, the big unicorns, they're not from a startup perspective. They're not people that are trying to do health tech. When you talk about like things that are really making and driving the world forward, you think you don't think of healthcare, but actually. It is. It's it's one of those things that we all are going to get sick. We are all every last person on this earth will always at some point need food and will always need health and will always die. Those are I think those are the three constants. There are I think there's someone said to me years ago, there are four constants in this world. If you can build a product that meets any one of those needs, you'll be successful. If you can build something that meets all of those needs, you'll be onto a winner. 
Um, and I think as long as you can, I think healthcare has always been underfunded because it's not seen as um, as, as primary. Um, I think it's always seen as a secondary thought. I think we've always been, I think the big one is we've always been reactive with care. Health, care, the whole lot, let's call it what it is. When I say care, I mean in both sides of it, healthcare, social care. We've always been reactive when it comes to care. We've always looked at gone, when something happens, we will put um, put gates and markers in place to help. But actually, if we move the needle forward and go into proactive care, there's so much, we could save so much more money, we can be so much more helpful. Okay, no, all fair points. Do you think COVID-19 is is having a positive impact then in that regard because we have had examples where we are having to build you know the obvious example is apps for for contact tracing but other examples where technology companies healthcare companies have had to come together and do things double quick time and innovate new solutions to 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 combat this virus do you think there's going to be a, a sort of lasting impact and an improvement in, in in the areas that we've spoken about i hope yeah i hope i hope i hope there is i think what i what i've definitely loved more the last six months haven't loved covid i think it's a terrible thing but what i've loved in the last six months is the way innovation has forced people to work together and how people are trying to collaborate together i think the previous six months and a lot the last couple of years it wasn't it was never there i think if it wasn't for covid healthcare wouldn't have got such a such a large billing we've been talking about this social care um green paper for four years or something like that and it it's never come in We've been talking, I mean, I've been speaking, my GP and half of the GPs I speak to through work and stuff like that have been saying they want to start doing video consultancy, but they can't. But all of a sudden, video consultancy is, is huge. Oh, wait, I can speak to somebody in their home where they feel comfortable at a time that works for them so they don't have to come into the surgery when they feel like they might be sick and probably don't want to speak to somebody. Oh, wow. I can also do culturally, culturally accessible um, care visits uh, and doctors' visits. Oh my gosh! It's, but you mean we had all these things? Video video consultancies didn't start in the last six months. We've had video consultancies for the last two three years. But what we've had is the government's gone. Do you know what? Let's put this through. And I think I'm hoping that going forward, all these all these government um, funding and all these companies trying to collaborate and work together continue doing that because the only way we're going to build better systems build better healthcare build better programs is by coming together we need to we've gone we were at a point where there's what 62 different systems being used in the nhs how many of them do we actually need 62 and how many of them could work together we've got i mean we've got four um electronic health record systems currently being used why and two of them don't even speak to each other properly and one of them, no one wants to speak to. But do you know what I mean? We're using we're using all these systems. I get we've got a bunch of suppliers that might be delivering better and cheaper products, and it's it's a free and open market, and it creates innovation. But all you've then got is go okay. If you've got four people providing the health records, which one should I use? Oh, you know they're all roughly the same. Okay, so what? How do I choose? Oh, okay, I'm going to choose this one because I like this one because the sales rep was really really good, and I think the product looks the best. Oh no, the hospital over there is using that one. Oh, the two systems don't talk to each other, but I've just but I've just spent my money on this one. So, oh, great! And I and I think that's what it is. I think we need to we need we need to get to a point where, like in say banking and like in a lot of other sectors, where it doesn't feel so much of a wild west. It yeah. feels a little bit more. 
I, and I think it, it has been. And I think I, I said to somebody um, that was, you mean, within NHS Digital, and I said, I, we've come to you with a product that we think is amazing and we think could work. And we know a lot of other people that are coming to you products that could work and you're just completely ignoring it. But if I basically walked out, slapped a Google logo on the top of my deck and walked back in, you'd be biting my hand off. And it was like, no, no. I was like, no, I work, when I worked for these big companies, I sold things into you that I knew cost a fraction of what the price was, but you had thrown money at it so much that we had to put, we, the prices went up. It, and, it, and, and that's what, I think that's the bit that's, that's kind of somewhat disgusting is we're not championing innovation from our own country. We're happy to speak to the big tech boys. Why? Is it because, is it a risk? Is it the fact that when something goes wrong, and I think a lot, well, people are lifers, but I mean, if, some, if something goes wrong when Google does it, Google goes into parliament, Google's one that come, come, someone from Google, their legal team will come and explain what, what, what happened and give you, you know, the legal speech. Something goes wrong with my product because I'm a small, I'm a startup. It's your head that's on the block, isn't it? It's you that has to explain why you picked me, why it went wrong. What, what, what things did you make sure that I was doing beforehand? And I think that's it. And I think that's probably why we just don't, we're not, we weren't previously champion innovation enough. No one wants to take the risk. Everyone wants a job. And I think we created a, a culture of fear where people didn't feel like they could take a risk. They didn't feel like they could make a mistake. And, and I think that's, I think overall from a, from a entrepreneurship perspective, a lot of people f- try go, well, I can't make a mistake. I've got one shot. At it. Well, no, you don't. When you were learning to walk, you fell so many times. Like I just might, I've got a, a, my son, he's two and he, I mean, he's walking, he's been walking for a while now, but when he was learning to walk, I was like, how? I was like, no, no. <laughs> but we forget that that's, that's natural. So, to, to get to the point where you are, you have to make all those mistakes. And you might go, okay, Google are, you mean, you mean well, let's call it Apple. Apple are the biggest company in the world. They probably don't make any mistakes. Well, actually, no. What you see is you see a product at the end of the year. But what you don't see is those 12 months of development where they go, okay, this is a, this is a, this is a, a, a bag of products. Um, <laughs> but you, know I mean? you, you don't see all those mistakes. But even when you do see the mistakes, the mistakes are polished enough. And I think people forget that sometimes you have to make those mistakes. There is nothing wrong with creating something, it fails, and you pivot and make something else. I was a pilot, I failed, I pivoted, I now run a healthcare, a healthcare agency and a healthcare startup. I don't feel bad that I failed there. What I learned was I, I was trying to be a pilot, I fell over. I was trying to work for I was trying to work for Apple. I fell over. I was trying to work for LinkedIn. I fell over. I worked for myself. I learned how to walk. I start running. We need to get the mindset out of our heads that we can't fail. We we have you have to sometimes fail, rip things apart, and break it. Our platform isn't the first isn't the first iteration. Myself and Martin spent hours, and we we were banging our heads against it to try and make it work. And I think. Kind of going into like the, the, the tech for good side of it. I think technology. I mean, I we work. I work with some amazing companies that are doing tech for good. For us, our pure reason to do what we do is to allow is to help other people. So, I mean, our our platform, um, our consumer product, which we're launching later on in the year, hasn't got price attached to it. There is no price because it's, I, I don't. It's not about that. It's the data inside of it is what's going to help to drive the information. I can't monetize. I don't want to monetize that. Because if I start monetizing that, you're not going to use the product because you're going to go, well, the only reason I'm using it is because you're paying me. No, I want I want you to use it because you genuinely see it's helping and supporting your lifestyle. 
And then you then, the more you use it, the better it is because the richer the content is, the richer the data, the more I can start going, okay, you are this generic fact um, category. You're this category, you're this category. Hey, Nicholas. And that's what I want to get to. Person-centered care that everyone keeps championing and talking about. You can't be person-centered if, I, if I'm still in statistic. One more question, Nick. And this, this has been absolutely brilliant. And I think it's, it's really... It's really fascinating to get to get the detail and the insights that you've given us and forgive the cliche nature of this question, but you know, during the pandemic, has it given you kind of a renewed sense of the values that you've just spoken about? Has it, has it sort of given you a, um, and not just you personally, but the, the company as well, has it given you sort of any, a different focus in a way? Cause obviously lots of people are talking about that and, and how that might um, be the case. I think through the pandemic and definitely even now, it's made me proud of what I do. And that's not a cliche. There have been points where it was stressful. There have been points where, I mean, everyone knows the horror stories of no, no PPE and this and the other. I think throughout the whole pandemic, I've, I've still kind of, I still now go, do you know what? I'm glad I'm doing what I do now, more so than any other job bar one that I've ever done in the past. Because I can see from a equational perspective, what how my actions are affecting my staff how my actions are affecting the people we look after and how and we i can see how we can make a difference so over christmas and so from from a company perspective over christmas what we do on christmas day we still work so we work 365 days a year or whatever we call it everyone forgets about that quarter but we work 365 days a year but on christmas day i think six years ago we started it for the first time and we were cooking meals and we, i think we cooked like 10 meals for service users that didn't have family near them. And I think it was about about two, three years ago. No, it was, yeah, it was about th- four years ago was when we did a, our first big one. And at that point, my operations director, who was heavily pregnant with her first child, her and her husband spent Christmas Day dropping uh, meals. I think we did something like 30 meals. She dropped 10 meals and actually had Christmas Christmas dinner with a service user that lived, that didn't have anyone around her. And last year was the first, I think last year we were up to 250 meals or something like that. And we covered that ourselves. And actually, when I try to explain it to like some other people I know that work in other companies, they're like, but why would you do that if you're not gonna if you're not making any money? Oh, is, are you getting are you PR in it? Or are you are you putting it on social media? And we're like, no, we're not. Well, you should do because you know it it helps. And I'm like, no, we do it because there are people that don't have anyone, and our business is about helping people. So we've got it, we can't just help people when it benefits us. We have to help people that that when it when they need our help as well. And in the long term, those people help us out. Um, and, and that, so for me, what's happened amazing through COVID is, is the fact that we've, we've pulled together. So we had, I think at most, we probably had two members of staff that were off sick. We had, I remember speaking to, you mean, one, um, one care home that had 20 staff off. I speak to a care agency that had 80 staff off in one, on one Friday. We, we lost we lost two so it it definitely this time made me remember why i did what i was doing why we do what we do and actually to continue doing what we do that was the tech for good podcast listen subscribe and rate us on spotify apple Podcasts, and stitcher